0: Hello, everybody, and welcome to Teaching Writing in College. I'm Tom Skeen. And the driving question is, how can instructors in higher education leverage theory, science, pedagogy, and craft most effectively to help their learners with writing? And so today, uh, I'd like to just follow up on a previous episode where it was about using practice to short circuit AI, artificial intelligence, And so uh, one of the reasons why I thought practice was important is simply that helping students with writing means providing them with a skill set that they can internalize rather than providing them with a linear path from from an assignment to a grade, where the linear path sometimes I think can be where students might want to use AI for academic dishonesty. And the idea is that we need to help them practice a lot of little skills that can really benefit them over time because that's where... Uh, the learning is going to be for them, so keeping them focused on those skills can be really important. <clears throat> Excuse me. Just uh, some brief scholarship on practice. One of my favorite books uh, about uh, learning is Why Don't Students Like School by Daniel T. Willingham. One of the thing he said, one of the things he says in there when he covers practice is that it's virtually impossible to become proficient at a mental task without extended practice, and one of the main reasons that he gives for that is that practice aids long-term memory, and that frees up working memory, and writing, of course, is a very complex task, and so it's great to have a go-to set of skills that can be used and can be accessed quickly to help solve writing problems, and today we're going to talk about the problem of structuring writing, and so... Uh, The writing strategy I'm going to use is one that I call familiar to unfamiliar. Uh, We're going to do just a practical example of practice here. So familiar to unfamiliar, I bring it into my writing classes all the time. And the basic idea is that readers need certain things to come earlier so that other things make sense to them later in any given text. And so uh, some things need to be familiar to them before they are ready to take on new unfamiliar information. And I got that originally from a textbook that I've used quite a bit, Ramage Bean and Johnson's Allen and Bacon Guide to Writing. I'm in the sixth edition. uh, That's an edition that I have handy. It's on pages 453 to 454. And uh, I think it comes from Kenneth Burke. Uh, They got (coughs) uh, part of their idea there from just this principle from Kenneth Burke. A work has form insofar as one part of it leads a reader to anticipate another part, to be gratified by the sequence, and so uh, that idea that there is uh, some kind of anticipation and then fulfillment when a reader is moving through a text, and if they anticipate something and then is not fulfilled, that's where they start to feel like the flow has been disrupted. And so uh, that's from Kenneth Burke. Um, there's I've got another sample that I that I remember uh, Ramage, Bean, and Johnson got uh, this idea. They called it old to new. I should have put that on the slide, but old to new in their textbooks. And I changed the wording just a little bit because I felt like it was going to help students remember it a little bit more familiar to unfamiliar. Readers have to be familiar with some information before unfamiliar information makes sense later. So I changed uh, the name of it a little bit. But uh, there's lots of practice material. I just wanted to kind of go through some that um, I have collected and used over the years. And so I have a folder that I've set aside uh, on my computer here with a bunch of things that I like to use. And so one I used recently, um, a few weeks ago, uh, one that I, I use to introduce familiar to unfamiliar sometimes comes from uh, a cartoon by Kelvin and Hobbes, And so if I get down here just a little bit, it's going to be right here. Okay, so I start by giving them some group practice, and I just ask, what is wrong with this cartoon? It's a Calvin and Hobbes cartoon that I have cut up, and I have scrambled the order, and I got it from uh, this source here. It's one of uh, Bill Watterson's books uh, from Calvin and Hobbes, and so uh, when I do this, I ask students, well, first, what's wrong with it, and then I give them a a chance to show how they would fix it. I give them a chance to talk about that and show how they would fix it. And then on one slide, I uh, have just got the little dialogue, I've broken it down just to the dialogue, and I asked them just to reorder it so that we could have a, a conversation about it. Um, and they start to say things, you know, what it looks like it's not in the right order, and uh, we wanted to rearrange it. Usually they will say, we wanted to put this one first. Maybe I will uh, just read the cartoon here for those who are listening. Uh, but um, here it goes. So Calvin says rrrrr, and Hobbes says, "I don't know. You're lacking something. You're still lacking something tigerish." Then uh, Hobbes again, panache. That's it. Calvin says, "Wait, I've got some plastic vampire fangs I can put in." And in both of those, Calvin has some stripes, some tiger stripes, and stuff. And uh, then the third panel, um, Hobbes is actually painting the stripes on, and you can't see Calvin's face yet. Gee, I'm getting more like a tiger every minute, Calvin says. Hobbes says, hold still while I draw some stripes. And then the next slide for how do I look? You can see Calvin with the stripes now. Hobbes says, it's some improvement. Excuse me. So uh, there it is. Uh, It's once again out of order. And what students usually will do is they will, maybe I can uh, do it like this. They almost always will put the third one first. And then, um, usually right after that, they will put the fourth one next, because then Calvin's asking how he looks after he's been drawn on a little bit. Whoops, what did I do here? There we go, I grabbed the wrong one. And then they might put it in various orders. But uh, here's one that uh, is pretty common. Well, usually they come down to about one or two orders. I remember from my latest conversation with them about this a few weeks ago. So uh, they will put, gee, I'm getting more like a tiger every minute where the drawing is happening, the painting on the face, the face painting. And then Calvin turns around, how do I look? It's some improvement. And then he starts to act like a tiger, and he'll do the roaring, roar, And Hobbes will say, I don't know. I think you're still lacking something tigerish. And then Hobbes says again, panache, that's it. And uh, Calvin says, wait, I've got some plastic vampire fangs I can put in. And so here you can kind of see the punchline. You know, there's panache. They might ask sometimes what panache means. And then uh, the plastic vampire fangs are kind of the opposite of panache. And so that one makes a good punchline. That's funny. Uh, Sometimes students will go for a little bit of sarcasm at the end. And so they might switch these last two up uh, so that it ends with, I don't know, you're still liking something tigerish. And they might say, well, it's because Calvin is uh, showing his teeth, really, in that one where he roars. He goes, roar. And Hobbes says, I don't know. You're still lacking something tigerish. And so I'll have students say that that's a good punchline because that one also is a little bit on the sarcastic side. And also uh, Calvin mentioned the vampire fangs in this particular, in the in one of the slides. And then when he's really kind of showing his teeth and he's doing a growl, You can really see the teeth. And so maybe the artist Bill Watterson meant for those to be the vampire fangs. And so um, there's a little, I really like this one because there's a little bit of ambiguity there at the end. Usually they don't have questions about the first two slides and they say, yeah, those are the first two. Um, And then the last two, there's some variation in what they decide to put as the third and fourth slide. And the reason why I like that is because. Uh, They learn about organizing writing, but then they also have to make the decision themselves, and they have to decide. Uh, And uh, both of them, there are reasons where you could say that uh, one fits or the other fits at the end, but uh, they have to decide. That's really important Uh, for the tool because familiar to unfamiliar, when you're structuring writing, uh, often, uh, depending on the genre, that can really be a task that the writer has to uh, take care of. They have to do on their own, and so I like to see folks apply that in there and so I give them that one Uh, they did that one together I talk about familiar to unfamiliar I have a little graphical description of it uh, or depiction familiar is where you start and it's kind of a zigzag and then you can give them some unfamiliar information the audience unfamiliar information that information becomes familiar then you give them more unfamiliar information that becomes familiar then you give them more unfamiliar information and so I really like to just kind of show it that way as a brief lecture in there. And then I give them a chance to do it again individually with another cartoon. Oh, I let them see the original uh, a little bit more, and then we might talk about that. Then I let them do one individually. I've got another one that I cut uh, have cut up as well. Let them do it again. So what I'm doing is I'm going through the I do, we do, you do uh, model a little bit, it's mostly we do and then you do, so the group does it and then the individual does it in this particular case. Uh, but uh, then um, I also, at the end of this one, since we're going to do a rhetorical analysis in a few weeks, I start early by giving them a an outline of a rhetorical analysis, but here you can see I've scrambled it up. So I've got about nine items I told them that I want to see in the rhetorical analysis, and. Uh, It starts with uh, one, conclusion, two, analysis of arguments, three, discussion of genre and the recurring occasion, four, introduction, five, discussion of the author's effectiveness, six, analysis of style, seven, analysis of impressions, eight, analysis of their choice, a past tool they've learned from another class or a different one from English 105 because I'm giving them some tools along the way, Uh, nine, a summary of the artifact you chose. And so I have them... Uh, decipher that using familiar to unfamiliar, and um, I just want them to apply the tools. And then on the last one, just individually, I have them just do it again uh, so that everybody in the group, they can kind of solidify their decisions on their own with uh, the outline of the rhetorical analysis. And uh, something that uh, sometimes makes them uncomfortable and they want answers. You know, I did this a few weeks ago and they're still asking me, well, what outline would you use? Dr. Skeen and I just tell them, you know, the one most important answer, I think, in the course, in English 105 is use the tools. And so we talk about that quite a bit. But then I also, you know, give them some encouragement. You know, did anybody put the conclusion at the beginning? And of course they didn't. Um, How many of you put the summary earlier? Uh, How many of you put it later? And sometimes there's a little bit of variation on that. Um, But, uh, you know, we just talk about how the audience needs various kinds of background information um, and that there are different ways to organize it, just like we talked about with the Calvin and Hobbes cartoon, and uh, there are going to be good reasons for putting certain things in certain places. And so, you know, sometimes, I think one that comes up, not the summary, usually they'll put the summary toward the beginning, uh, maybe right after the introduction a lot of times, but sometimes they will discuss the author's effectiveness they'll want to, some will want to put that earlier some will want to put it later usually they'll put the different parts of analysis they'll group those up together and put them in the middle and we have conversations about that and I just tell them you know I'm not worried I just want to see you you know based on this conversation you're making great choices and really in the writing I just want to see you make those choices and we'll talk about you know fitting them in and doing transitions and things like that to make sure they fit because it also has to do with how you prep your audience So uh, that's uh, what I do quite a bit with them. And I do that several times, Um, just with this outline. So um, if we go to some of my other um, slides about familiar to unfamiliar, I've got a bunch of them here. Uh, There's a couple more with the rhetorical analysis, just practicing with the outline. You can see I did one the very next class period. I did one on the 13th. I did it again on the 15th. It's the same outline. I just uh, uh, did it again quickly uh, right there. Had them do it again just so that they could remember. And we just did that as a warm-up activity. And then I did it again uh, the next week after about a week had gone by. Another seven days had gone by. I did it again, and I added something to it. What did I add? Oh, Oh, I prepped them to choose a tool of their choice, which also was on there because they were getting ready to uh, uh, do a little bit more writing. And so part of it is an analysis using a tool of their choice. And so we talked about which tools they might use. A lot of folks have heard of logos, pathos, or ethos. And so if they wanted to choose one of those, I just asked them by raise of hands, do you want to do that? Uh, Sometimes literary devices. Most of my students just got out of high school and they talked about literature in some of their English classes. And they uh, know something about some devices that they feel like they see that they could use for rhetorical analysis, just to draw on their prior knowledge. I want to give them a chance to do that. Um, another strategy from English 105, uh, we've talked about arguments and stasis theory a bit. Um, we've talked about developing impressions in writing, and we're going to continue to do that. But they And they had already written some about those, and so they could choose another aspect of those if they wanted to. And so I was just going back and reviewing. But it was related to. Uh, partly what material they needed to develop it and what order they needed to put it in so i'm just kind of keeping that decision on their minds uh, here and then to go to some other ones Um, here's another one that i've done before um, with a class schedule familiar to unfamiliar you can scramble up a a course schedule and uh, just put it on the board just to pick one and give them a chance to fix it Um, i've used that one before to uh, uh introduce familiar to unfamiliar to them and uh just some bullet points what does my audience need to know earlier so that other things make sense later familiar to unfamiliar is a strategy for structuring writing for the reader so i'm there i'm putting it into um genre i need to talk about genre but uh, i have an acronym rocks that i like to use and structure is you know a part of uh, most any genre sometimes even a lack of structure depending on what type of writing you're doing, like free-form poetry or something like that. But uh, it can also help you develop content, and we talk about that a little bit at some point, so I put that in there. Um, We also have, let's see, introductions and familiar to unfamiliar. That's a really important point, that uh, introductions use familiar to unfamiliar as well. Let's see where I have a... Yeah, here's a really good example. So this is from a um, uh, something from NPR. Uh, just uh, it was about dyslexia. Just a, a brief report on dyslexia and some research or something that's coming out of it. And they uh, begin. They introduce the segment on the radio for the listener by, you know, some using some common ideas about what people think dyslexia is. And so right there, they're kind of anchoring the listener in this case by giving them something that's familiar. A lot of people feel like dyslexia is about jumbled and mixed up words and things like that. And so that's how they introduce the segment. And then I don't know if you can see this. When you get into, if I can uh, get just a little bit further, let's see, I need to put this up here so you can see it maybe a little bit better. Is it going to go up? Here we go. You can kind of see how they, they go out and they, interview some people briefly. What is dyslexia? And they all say, you know, it's about words are out of order, they're backwards, and they're mixing letters up and things. And then uh, Scott Simon, the host, says, but experts say that's not really what dyslexia is all about. And then Gabrielle Emanuel of the NPR ed team reports, and then it goes into the report. So there's some familiar to unfamiliar there as well. And uh, then that gets used as um, a way into an introduction. Here's another one, and this one is the one that this came. This is I, this is part of where Ramage, Bean, and Johnson, uh, I think, got this idea of old to new, or at least they use it as an example. They reference it in the Allen and Bacon Guide to Writing, and it comes from George Gopin and Judith Swans, The Science of Scientific Writing, which was in the American Scientist back in 1990, and they've got a table about time and temperature and uh, just restructuring it a little bit, you know, and labeling time at the top, and temperature at the top, and having kind of a two-column structure is a really great way to go from familiar to unfamiliar, because you start just by labeling what the column is about, and then after that, uh, and uh, it's easy to follow what those numbers mean. And otherwise, it's uh, a lot less easy. And then the temperature as well. Uh, and so that's one that I bring in sometimes for students. Uh, sometimes I also bring in my own work bring in my uh, this is uh, just a handwritten outline of a paragraph I've got a a book I'm working on and so I just uh, uh, f- took my 45 paragraphs and I I like to do this sometimes as a writer you know after I have something I will go back and just outline it paragraph by paragraph and then ask myself is this a good order for everything to be in and so I bring that in and show students, you know, I'm using the same skills that I'm teaching you, and it helps me do things that I need to do. Um, Here's one. This one's also, I think, a report from NPR that I was able to uh, get off of NPR.org. It was a news story about building houses, and I do a familiar to unfamiliar activity with that as well. Sometimes the the listening ones are really good. And really, um, if we go back just to some activities here that you know ones that uh, any writing teacher could do Um, you can scramble things like flight departure and arrival schedule there's one like that in the allen and bacon guide to writing that works really well cartoons like i did recipes are great Uh, usually the ingredients come before the instructions because you need to know how much of something before you can actually carry the recipe out and students get that you know if you take a recipe and just mix it up and have them reorder it. They'll, you know, tell you you know reasons why they did that. That's good for familiar to unfamiliar excerpts of text or a class schedule. Other small genres uh, that you can think of would also be really helpful. Just in the classroom uh, to make the uh, just an opportunity to practice. Sometimes it might be five minutes. Sometimes it might be ten or fifteen, depending on what's going on. And then you can also do it in writing. More you know. Uh, specifically different things like introductions um, or transitions or uh, conclusions or outlines or any of that and so lots of possibilities for familiar to unfamiliar there and just practice um, across the semester can be really helpful just bring it back once in a while here you know i uh, that's what i try to do you can see my dates over there on the side and um i use them and reuse them so some i haven't used for a while and others i've used recently but um The idea is to just continue giving them that practice once in a while throughout the semester. And they'll remember it. You can have them use it in their other classes. You can have them bring something in from another class and workshop it for just familiar to unfamiliar or anything else that you're doing. And so it uh, works really well. It's a very uh, helpful skill uh, that uh, students really like. And I also, um, actually, I was just doing this before the podcast. I happened to be looking in another textbook I have on my desk, Problem Solving Strategies for Writing by Linda Flower uh, from way back. This is from the 1980s, and I've been uh, just kind of browsing through it a little bit because I'm interested in cognition. And uh, that's uh, this textbook kind of comes from that uh, mindset, that idea that, uh, uh Writing strategies have to help readers cognitively. That's a little bit about what it's about. And there's a section in there about audience and readers. And you can tell that they the same idea of familiar to unfamiliar is in here, you know, because readers have to anchor uh, information that they already know about to new information. And so um, I actually just noticed this. And maybe sometime I'll come back and report on it because maybe it's going to help enhance my, discuss, my discussions of familiar to unfamiliar with my students. Maybe it will inspire me to develop a new activity or two that I can use with them about that. It'll add some new dimensions, and so I look forward to that. But thank you once again for your support through listening. Make sure to like, follow, and subscribe. And I hope to uh, bring out another episode in the near future. I hope that what you've heard here today or seen on YouTube, if you're watching on YouTube, I hope that it is helpful to you. And always, I would love to hear from listeners as well. I'm available at at gmail.com And I appreciate any comments that you have to provide. So thank you so much.